This morning we're going to be talking about worship, and we're working through our uh, mission statement as a church, and this is the week on the paragraph on worship. That statement uh, defines worship as acknowledging and responding to God and pursuing Him with a whole heart. This morning I want to look at several different passages to explore what worship really is, but before uh, we look uh, at the scripture, let me read to you an article from the New York Times. This is a review of a rock concert from about uh, about a year ago. I want you to listen carefully because I think the reviewer has really grasped something very important here. But the headline on the article reads, Aerosmith offers fans the familiar decadence. And here's what the article says. For critics of mass culture, a stadium rock concert provides a lot of ammunition. They're all the same. And even one of the giants of rock, Aerosmith, who performed on Saturday night in New Jersey, plods through the concert with the same formula. A few power ballads, solo guitar, strong drum section, and lots and lots of volume and excess, especially at the service of rebellion and sexuality. But critics of pop culture usually put the emphasis in the wrong place, looking at the lack of the artist's skill and originality, rather than the needs of the audience. The sellout crowd had probably seen the same routine dozens of times before, and it didn't care a bit. There is a clear need for some form of transcendence, and the band and its lead singer, Steven Tyler, were there to supply it. This transcendence came in the form of rebellious decadence, decadence being the quickest and easiest way to slip out of that nine-to-five existence. goes on, describes the, the concert. He says, Mr. Tyler started the show with Eat the Rich, from Aerosmith's new album, Get a Grip. That, of course, got everybody going. Dressed in tight bell-bottoms, some sort of frilly, patterned overcoat, Mr. Tyler danced around the stage, acting as if every minute of every song was filled with the purest and wildest ecstasy, jerking his body, hopping around on stage, leering at the audience with his horse-like jaw. He is Jerry Lewis with an extra carburetor. Emaciated, Mr. Tyler gave the impression of a life hard-lived. He acted sexually, jerking his hips and rubbing his body. For someone pushing 50, Mr. Tyler is an amazing singer, but he spends much of the show screaming. His emaciation and tattoos, his extravagant dress, he's everything the youth culture values but can't realistically achieve. For an hour and a half, he brought the audience as close as it will get to his fantasy without self-destruction. I think that is an amazingly insightful review. Have you ever wondered why so many kids are so dedicated to this loud, violent, sexual music? All that goes with it, the costumes and the, the, the lifestyle. Listen again to what he said, the, the reviewer said. He said, the sellout crowd had probably seen the same routine dozens of times before and it didn't care a bit. There is a clear need for some form of transcendence. And the band and its lead singer, Steven Tyler, were there to supply it. This transcendence came in the form of rebellious decadence. Decadence being the quickest way to slip out of the nine-to-five existence. You see, the reviewer recognizes that those kids are there because they have a profound need for what he calls transcendence. And he also recognizes that uh, decadence is the quickest way to get there, the easiest way to get there. 
He uh, defines transcendence somewhat as slipping out of the nine to five existence, and that's pretty close. But I think his basic analysis is profound. You see, we all ache. There's, there, there, there's a hunger in each of us. We all know there is more to life than what the reviewer calls the nine to five existence. We all long to be absorbed in something, to give ourselves so completely to something that we can leave behind the loneliness and the pain and the pressures of our normal life, to somehow rise above it, even for just a little time. See, and that's what these kids are after. They want to touch something significant. They want to be away for just a little bit. These kids at the rock concert are no different than the rest of us. Except that they've chosen a a path to to this transcendence that most of us don't find all that attractive. See, they they participate in a kind of a, a ritualized process in which they're led by the band through a bombardment of, of sensual stimuli, a lot of music and images and, and, and uh, just the, the mood and the growing uh, uh, frenzy of the crowd led to an ecstatic experience, an escape, touching something bigger, being caught up in, in something bigger. You know, music and sex and violence... And drugs have been time-tested throughout history in every culture of the world. Decadence has been the way that every culture, apart from the gospel, has sought to find that transcendence. But most of us here uh, realize that that is a false shortcut. You see, decadence really is the quickest and easiest way to escape the pressure, the pain, the loneliness of our, of our normal lives, of our nine-to-five existence, to get out of ourselves, to touch something. You know, alcohol is a quick and easy way. A couple of drinks and you're gone. The pain is dulled. You're, you're possessed by something else. You, you can leave behind your, your nine-to-five existence at least for a little while. But then you sober up and the problems are bigger and the pain the emptiness is worse. You see, again, this, what these kids are going after is not so much different than what our hearts ache for. The destruction at the end of the path is a little lot more obvious, maybe, in their case, or in the case of, of alcohol, looking toward getting whipped up into this ecstatic experience, abandoning themselves to it. And this is true of, of other types of decadence, whether it's uh, uh, drugs or, or, or sex or um, violence. You know, it's quick and it's easy, but we can see the effect. We can see the end of that path. And so most of us know that, that decadence doesn't work, that it's a, it's a false shortcut. We avoid that shortcut. You know, these are all quick and easy and undisciplined ways to try to get away from the pain and the loneliness. They don't last, and in the end, the pain is greater, the loneliness is deeper. So again, I'm sure most of us here uh, avoid those easy, undisciplined paths. But we still long to escape. We still long to rise above 
our nine to five existence. We know there's more to life and we hunger for more. We, uh, we want to give ourselves to something. And so we get addicted by all kinds of things. Just as addicted as the kid on drugs or, or the, the, the heavy metal junkie. We just choose more disciplined, slower kinds of poison. And we'll, we'll throw ourselves into our work and become workaholics. Or, or we'll throw ourselves into to, uh, romance fantasies or the television or, or, or food or uh, hunting or golf or you know, races, sports, all kinds of things that we find to throw ourselves into, to, to, to uh, occupy our time. See, the, the, the quest is for something that we can be so absorbed in that we feel uh, above the pain, distracted for a while, that we're not, a, we're not in touch with that emptiness, that hurt. You know, the list, like I said, is endless, but the quest is always the same. We may avoid the, the, the uh, quick and undisciplined paths of decadence, but if we're looking for transcendence anywhere other than where it can really be found, anywhere other than where it's intended to be found, it'll destroy us. It will leave us empty. Fast or slow, the end is the same. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not uh, against work or uh, food or uh, um, TV or golf. Maybe I'm against golf, but you know, I'm not against uh, uh, sex in it, it, its proper context. I'm not even against rock and roll. All I'm saying is that these substitutes, these things that uh, René Girard refers to as deviated transcendence, they're counterfeits. They are, they are imitations that can never give us what our hearts long for, what the ache is really all about. We all ache. That's a given. We are human beings. It's there. So it's critical that we understand exactly what that ache, that hunger, that thirst is, it is and what it's for. So let's turn to Psalm 42. Because there David quickly... And clearly identifies for us what that ache is all about. Psalm 42. Let me just read the first couple of verses. Psalm 42. He says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? You see, there it is. It's clearly defined. The ache the hunger is a thirst for God. That's what it is. We ache to be in touch with Him. That's what true transcendence is all about. See, our problem is not that we don't feel the hunger, we don't feel the ache. Our problem is that when we fail to recognize it for what it is, we try to... To, to fill it with other things. We are so easily distracted and we fall back into our old habits, our own patterns of trying to find something that will fill the void, things that have worked in the past. We fall back into uh, putting our, our, our 
attention on food because at mealtime we could kind of close off the rest of the world and food absorbs our, our attention and we feel a little bit of freedom from the anxiety and the pressure all around us. Or again, we throw ourselves into work because by putting all of our focus, we can narrow it and just deal with that world and push the rest of the complications of family and life and, and everything else away, at least for a little while. Again, whatever, whatever poison we choose for ourselves, we, we jump into that and we put our focus on it. We can narrow our focus. We can keep the rest of life away. Whether it's a pastime, a hobby, whatever. We can push the pain away for a little while. But the ache, the hunger, the thirst really is for God. And listen again the way David uh, describes it. He uses the, the poetic figure of a deer panting for the water, looking through all of the dry wadis that were all over the place in that part of the world, all the empty ditches, looking for the one thing he desperately needed, and that was water. I don't know how long a deer can go without water. I know human beings can't last much more than about 72 hours, but we die. See, that thirst is really for life itself. The thirst is for the living God, the one who can uh, satisfy what we need. You know, we know we thirst. And we go looking around in the, the wadis, the, the, the empty ditches of our lives, looking for the thing that satisfies, trying these other things, and they don't satisfy. They don't give us what we so desperately need, and our spirits dry up and die. It's like what Jeremiah says in, uh, when God said through Jeremiah, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. See, we try to supply for ourselves what, what we think we need. We dig our cisterns and we try to fill them full of water and then we try to drink from them, but the water just runs out and, and all that's left is the bitter dregs, the kind of the unhealthy residue that, that poisons our souls. Again, our thirst is for God Himself, the, the living water. And in touching Him, we find rest and release. We find uh, the, uh, freedom in remembering His, His love, being immersed in, in His sovereignty, His power, His goodness. See, this again is true transcendence. We were created to be uh, abandoned to God, to, to, be, to be filled with Him. Only God can fill what uh, Pascal called that God-shaped vacuum in each one of us. Let's go on with our uh, psalm. In verses 3 and 4, David describes the hurt of feeling separated from God. He says his tears have been his food day and night. He's had nothing to drink but his own tears because he's hurting badly. The, the ache is deep in, in David. And, and I think it may even be more deep because David has tasted God. He has tasted worshiping God with, with, with other people. He has tasted what he calls uh, worshiping God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving. You see, other people may have this vague 
hunger, but they're not really sure what it is. Eventually, they, they, they recognize that what they're doing isn't working, isn't satisfying. But see, David knows exactly what it is. Now, he's wise enough not to get distracted by going back to those broken cisterns, those empty ditches. But he still aches. You know, maybe you have tasted that closeness with God. And now the ache is all the deeper because you know what you're missing. Maybe when you first came to Christ, you felt the freedom, the release, the, 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 the love, the connection with God. Now you feel a long ways off and the pain is worse because of it. But what do you do? Well, what did David do? Look at verse 5. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. First thing David does is he starts talking to himself. He says, hey soul, wake up. Realize what's going on here. David Roper says frequently, we listen to ourselves when we should be talking to ourselves. You see, we, we hurt and we cry and we start listening to ourselves and to our complaints. God doesn't care. God's nowhere to be seen. My problem's too big. My problem's too painful. It's lasting too long. And we go running back to those broken cisterns. We go running back to those, those empty ditches and we drink the sludge. See, David stops himself and he tells himself, he says, put your hope in God. The word hope there literally means to wait. He's telling himself to wait for God. Now, one of the problems that we face is that these substitutes, these other ways of filling the hole are quick and easy. There's an immediate gratification. We're away from the problem for a little while. A couple of drinks and we're gone. We can give in to that anger at our wife or that resentment of our husband. And we're swept away from that by that. And we're absorbed in that. And the rest of the issues and the problems are all away for a while. Again, whatever we throw ourselves into, it's different being filled by God. Because it's not quick and it's not easy. It requires that we wait for Him. That we move the focus of our souls, the focus of our hearts Onto Him and who He is and what He's done and how He has loved us. And as we do that, as we reorient, as we refocus on Him, again, we start moving toward Him and we begin to, to praise Him, our Savior and our God. See, that's what our, our hearts, our souls hunger for. And the key starting point is to, to train our attention on Him, remembering Him, even when it feels like it's taking too long. It's too much of a wait. Turning his focus to God is exactly what David does. Uh, notice the change in verses 6 and 7. He's been talking to his soul. Now he's talking to God in verse 6. My soul is downcast within me. He's kind of tattling on himself here. Therefore I will remember you. From the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. 
David says to God, I will remember you. I'll remind myself of you even when I'm out in the wilderness. Hermon is a very large mountain in the north. It's the source of the Jordan River. Mizar is a little hill at the foot of a range uh, uh, at the foot of that mountain of Mount Hermon. In fact, the word Mizar literally means little mountain. What David's saying is even when I'm out in the middle of nowhere, even if there's no one else around to remind him, David reminds himself. And the first thing that he reminds himself is that that ache, that hunger is God calling to him. Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. David says, deep calls to deep. He recognized that that thirst, that hunger, is God calling to him deep within his soul. See, that's why it hurts so much. That's why it's so profound, because it is so deep. It's, it's beyond our, our, our consciousness. It's beyond our emotions. It's, it's the very core of our being. The Spirit of God is calling to our spirits to turn to Him, to run to Him, to let Him be our rock and our refuge. And as we do that, as we run into His arms, as a hurting child runs into his mother's arms, we find ourselves swept away by His love. He says, uh, Your waves and your breakers have swept over me. Uh, Last summer... Our family went camping up on the California coast, and one day we went down to the beach, and Becky and I are sitting there on the beach, and our daughters and and one of our uh, nieces, Rachel, were letting the waves chase them. You know, it was too cold to really go swimming, but the waves were chasing them, and their legs were getting wet, and they're having a good time. And at one point, they stopped to look at something they found in the sand, and they're all standing there looking down at the sand, and this big wave came. I mean, it was a huge one, bigger than any that had been there before, and it just came crashing down right on top of them. Bowled them over, swept them away. Fortunately, it didn't sweep them too far. They, uh, they kind of came up spitting and sputtering, and that was pretty much the end of uh, playing with, with the waves for the day. But you see, for David, those breakers, those waves aren't scary. They're not menacing. They are being swept away by God's love, by His goodness, being immersed in, in, in the warm, soft waters of His love. That's what he says in verse 8. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. See, as David directs his heart back to the Lord, he once again experiences the awareness of God's love. He's in touch with that again. And as that begins to become more and more of his his consciousness, it just spills over into songs of praise in his bed and, and, and prayers of praise to the God of his life. See, instead of tears soaking his bed all night, all night long, instead at night he's singing to God and filled with God's praises. These are really the expressions of worship, the, the outflow of, of true worship. Now, I don't want you to think that uh, this is somehow a, a magic formula that gets rid of all of your problems. It doesn't. The problems are still there. 
But as we reorient on God, as we connect with Him, not in just some uh, theological, theoretical sense, but personally come back into touch with God. He lifts us above the problems. So this is what true transcendence really is. The problems haven't gone away. But now, connected with Him, immersed in His love and His power, His sovereignty, He is in control. We're able to readdress those problems. Those problems no longer define our lives. Those problems no longer dictate our mood or our experience. Connected with Him, we can trust Him. We can be filled with His peace and His fortitude as we address the issues, the realities of our lives. We, we, we address our lives with a whole new perspective, a whole new attitude. But like I say, those problems... Uh, don't go away. And as we get involved in, in, in the details of our lives, working through our frustrations and our fears, grieving our losses, times we again lose our focus. The pain and the pressure and the, and the frustrations begin to cloud and distract and we find ourselves again feeling alone and abandoned. This is exactly what happened to David. He started feeling these things again. This is so true to our our life and our experience. Verse 9. I say to my rock, to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer, suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? See, David... Uh, He's felt, again, that, that distraction. He's been caught up in his, his pain, his problems. So what does he do? Well, he immediately starts the process over again. He immediately turns himself back toward God. He recognizes the deep calling of God. And he starts talking to himself again. Look at verse 11. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hey, wake up, soul. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. See, the whole process starts over again. But the key is to recognize what is going on. A while back, uh, Becky and I went through a very deep disappointment and loss. And my way of dealing it with it was to cover it with a very thin religious veneer and avoid it entirely. To say, that's God's will, no problem. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to think about it. Try to distract myself. And Becky, the wise woman that she is, saw exactly what I was doing and tried to tell me. And I wouldn't hear it. In fact, that gave me a, a broken cistern to use. Now I could resent her for telling me the truth. And there I can put my discomfort, my pain on somebody. And this went on for some time, uh, a couple months. And finally that summer we were sitting, uh, we were up at uh, family camp. I'm sitting by the fire, staring into the flames. Becky and the girls had gone to bed, I'm sure partly because I wasn't that great a company. As I sat there, I, I cried out to God. I said, God, either cure me or kill me. I don't care which, but it can't stay this way. And as I began to, to pour my heart out to God, I, I recognized what was going on. I was afraid to trust him. I was afraid he'd disappoint me again. 
that it hurt me in order to teach me a lesson or, or something like that. And I started to recognize what I was really aching for. I wasn't aching because of the, the, the honest love of my wife. I wasn't aching because of the innocent irritations of my kids or the pressure at, at, at work or financial pressures. I was aching for God. And I was holding Him at a distance. And it wasn't until I turned back to Him that I found release, that I found what I was really aching for. Those times that we ache, if we fail to recognize in that ache the calling of God on our souls, that's when we're so vulnerable to to thinking it's something else. And as soon as we fix those feelings on something here, something on earth, this person that's not giving us what we want, or, or this person that we need, or this thing that we need, or this thing that we need to be different. As soon as we do that, we begin to be destroyed. We get distracted from the true longing. And it begins to breed in us contention and, 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 and strife and bitterness and, and jealousies and hatred. See, the key is recognizing what is going on. We all ache, and that's a given. We're all humans. We've been created with that longing. The critical thing is for us to define it accurately, to recognize what is happening, that this thirst is a hunger for God. We have a profound need for Him, and we ache when we feel separated from Him. So what we must do is to stop and to turn toward Him, to wait on Him, to, to fix our attention on Him. And as we do that, we begin to experience, remember His love. And that begins to overflow in us into songs and prayers of, of praise. See, that's what worship is. That's the start of worship. Now, I uh, want to leave the, uh, the Psalms and jump quickly into the New Testament. I want to start with Romans 12, 1 and 2. There's a couple of passages that, that um, have some things about worship I want us to see. I don't want to stay here very long because uh, next week Clark Petticord is going to be teaching from this passage and I don't want to rip him off too badly. But there are a couple of things about worship that I want us to see. In the first 11 chapters of uh, Romans, Paul has fully explained the gospel. He made it very clear that all humans are sinners, that we have turned our worship to things other than God, that we've tried to quench the thirst with things other than God, and as a result, we're separated from God and confused and miserable. But he also made it clear that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent His Son because He loved us so much to... uh, so that by faith in Him, by trusting what He did on the cross to take care of our sins and accepting the free gift of His righteousness, we can be reunited with God, reconnected. In the last couple of chapters, Paul made it clear that this offer of salvation is available to everyone, to all people. So now he comes and he says, with all of this in mind, having seen all of this in God's Word, in the Scriptures... I urge you 
to worship. Having seen the incredible mercy of God, I urge you to worship. 12, 1 and 2. Therefore I urge you, brothers, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve that God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. Now the first thing I want you to see here is that worship is always a response to God's and God's excuse me to God and the revelation of God's love. Worship is always a response to God and the revelation of God's love. See God took the initiative. He is calling us deep within us. But if he left it there didn't go further, we would never understand what was happening. We would never properly identify that ache. We would be like every other culture throughout history around the world. We would begin to try to fill that ache through decadence, through pagan ritual, through violent sacrifice, sexual worship, drug-induced frenzy. Every culture resorts to that. And we see our culture moving back toward that as they lose sight of the gospel. So we would be just as lost if God hadn't identified what that ache is. But you see, God does not leave it there. He doesn't just call us deep within our soul. He goes further. He gave us His Word so that we could understand that ache. God acted in history to make a way for us to be reunited, reconnected with Him. And then He revealed that way to us in His Word. Worship is is the response to God and the revelation of His love. That's exactly what Paul is referring to when he says, I urge you on the mercies of God to give your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. See what, what worship really is? It's a response to God, and it's a response that involves giving our bodies a living sacrifice. Paul says that's your spiritual service or spiritual act of worship. Now the word spiritual there really means logical or rational. He says, in light of everything we've talked about, this is the only logical, rational thing to do. Worship Him. And that worship is giving your bodies to Him. Now why does He want our bodies, not our souls? I think He asked for our bodies, our flesh and bone, concrete bodies, because He knows our insufferable penchant to spiritualize as human beings. If you ask for our souls, we'd get all theoretical and abstract and, and spiritual. So he tells us he wants our flesh and bones bodies from the tip of our head to the bottom of our toes. Every bit of us, all of us, 100%. He wants us to give them to him freely for him to use in any way he wants. And how does he want to use them? Well, he wants to use them to express his love to other people. You see, he wants to use these ears to listen to someone who's hurting or to listen to their joys. He wants to use these arms to wrap around someone. He wants to use this mouth to, to explain the truth in love, to, to give words of encouragement. He wants to use this face to, to smile and welcome. He wants to use these hands to help somebody build a fence or, or to write a check. He wants these flesh and bone bodies to express his love to others through them. And as we give them 
these bodies. Every time he uses this body to love or to serve another person, that is an act of worship. We uh, give him give him ownership, and he uses it. So often we think of worship as as singing songs, and there's nothing wrong with that. That is that can be an act of worship, but only when it flows out of a life abandoned to him, given to him. You see, we come together and sing together, but that is merely a superficial religious exercise that gives us a momentary relief from the nine-to-five pressure, a momentary distraction for what we long for more deeply, unless it comes out of a life abandoned to Him. Worship is far more than singing, far more than the feeling of awe you may get from now on. Or from time to time in church. It's giving yourself 100%, absolutely, entirely abandoning yourself to Him. No reservations, no holding back. Saying, God, this body is yours. Use it as you please. Then as we do that, and then we come together, and we're filled with, with the delight of having seen God use us to love other people. We come back together and we share that with ourselves. And it automatically, inevitably erupts and overflows into songs of worship and, and prayers of praise. But it comes out of hearts and lives 100% given to God. Over 300 years ago, Francis Finlan wrote... What folly to fear to be too entirely God's. It is to fear to be too happy. It is to fear to love God's will in all things. It is to fear to have too much courage in the crosses which are inevitable. Too much comfort in God's love. Too much detachment from the passions which make us miserable. You see, we fear being too much God's. That's why he's got to renew our mind, change our thinking, so that we realize the privilege, the pleasure of being His. One more passage. I'm out of time, <coughs> and I won't stay here long. But 1 Corinthians 6. first part of the chapter, actually about verse 12. Paul is describing some broken cisterns that people use. He's talking, he talks about food. He talks about sexual addictions. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, stay away from these things. He says, don't be mastered is the way he describes addictions. Don't be mastered by these things. Stay away. And he gives us the reason in verses 19 and 20. That's what I want to look at. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. See, the two reasons that Paul gives is, first of all, that you were bought with a very expensive price, the blood of Jesus Christ. And on top of that, you've given yourself to Him, a living sacrifice, which was your intelligent thing to do. But then he says the other part of that is that now you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. See, sometimes we're tempted to think, well, I can reconnect with God if I go back to church don't get me wrong, it's good to be together. It's good to be reminded of God's Word together and to, to sing God's praises together. We're commanded to do this. But you've got to realize that you have immediate access to God 24 hours a day. You are a portable temple. You have that inward sanctuary where you can meet God no matter where you are, no matter what you are doing. 
you can stop and turn to Him. Paul elsewhere calls this the heavenlies, that place deep inside of us where we connect with the living God. You can immediately, right now, turn to Him. Put your focus on Him. Sit on His lap. Enjoy His presence. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, you have unlimited, unrestrained access. There's never any reason to delay, to wait till next Sunday or to any other time. You can do it right now. As soon as you begin to feel the ache, recognize it for what it is. Start talking to your soul. Say, hey soul, wake up. This is what's going on. That's the hunger for God. Now turn your focus on Him. Train your attention on Him. Begin to remember His love. And then give yourself to Him in response to that great love. Then you'll begin to experience the, 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 the praise, the exaltation that comes at seeing His faithfulness, at using you to love other people. Ray Steadman used to say, the problem with living sacrifices is they keep crawling off the altar. Well, realize that that altar is right inside of you and you can crawl right back on right now. Crawl on that altar. Give yourself to Him anew. Experience being swept away in His love. Overwhelmed by that love. And praise Him for it. And then look around you and see who He wants to express that love to through you. Who He wants you to serve and to love. That's what worship is all about. Well, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, well, I, I, I just admit that I so often um, don't recognize what's going on. I don't even uh, know I'm aching sometimes until I'm being uh, thoughtless and cruel to people around me. Lord, I pray for each of us that we would recognize the ache for what it is, your spirit calling deep within us, that we would wake up and we would talk to ourselves and that we would turn away from those broken cisterns, from that anger at our, uh, at the people around us or that irritation at our circumstances and turn our focus to you, to connect with you, to rise above our problems, to experience true transcendence and then to address those problems with confidence in you, trusting you, filled with your peace and your fortitude. Lord, we want to find release. We want to find freedom in you. Our hearts are so quick to jump elsewhere, Lord. We need you by your Spirit to speak to us, to show us what's going on. Just ask this week that you do that, that we would remember you and give ourselves daily, again and again, living sacrifices for you. Pray this in your name. Amen.